Good morning to you all. We're starting with Acts 17, 16, and we're going to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising them from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. May our eyes be open to what God reveals to us today. Please be seated. Amen. I dabble in things. Uh, most of us do, 
People ask me sometimes if I'm a golfer. I'm not. I play maybe two or four rounds a year, which means that I golf, but I'm not a golfer. I dabble. A little more than a year ago, I decided that I would try to see if I could learn to play the piano. And pretty aggressively, over a period of several months, I diligently practiced scales and started working through a practice book, and I think that I did okay. But it became very quickly apparent to me that if I was actually going to try to become competent in piano, it would take a long-term investment of time and energy that I was not prepared to give in light of other priorities. So I dabbled in it, but then I set it aside. Most of us dabble in one thing or another. You all do. Some of you dabble in your garden. Some of you dabble under the hood of your cars. Some of you dabble with poetry or sports or travel. Our culture, I think, dabbles in God and dabbles in religion. That is, it's very common to engage in the occasional religious practices or to speak the name of God, but without really giving God a place in one's life. Often couples will approach me and ask to have their weddings here in the church. And their lifestyle shows that they've given God no room, but they want to be married in a church because they think that it will bring God's favor. I see on the computer, some of you who are on Facebook or other things, inspirational pictures or quotes that people post, and they include God but I see them posted by people that I know otherwise don't give God a thought. And I've wondered sometimes if the commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain has nothing to do with swearing or profanity, but rather of too quickly attaching the Lord's name to our lives without any real sense of honoring or seeking, that to take the Lord's name in vain is to dabble with God, to try to have some of the things of God in our life without having God in our life. To speak familiarly of God without living life in the context of God, as a pseudo-spirituality. This is not new. In the 700s BC, God said this of his people, the Israelites, they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 29. About 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul also engaged with a pseudo-spiritual culture, this time in the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. So in the book of Acts now, we come to the middle of Acts chapter 17. Paul has preached Christ in Thessalonica, and before very long, as usual, he and the new believers there experience violent opposition. So Paul goes from there to Berea, And there, the Bereans, rather than getting all bent out of shape, measure what Paul is preaching against the scriptures, the Old Testament, to to see if what he's saying aligns with what God has said. And they discover that it does. But some Thessalonians come to Berea and agitate the populace against the Christians, and the believers hustle Paul out of the city for his own safety, and where they hustle him to is Athens. And he's to wait there until Silas and Timothy, his partners, join him. And so for the first time in a long time, as far as we can tell in Acts, Paul is by himself in a city, Athens. 
And though it was the time of the Roman Empire, the Roman culture was profoundly influenced by the Greek culture. And the center of Greek culture was the city of Athens. And even in our day, synonymous with the name Athens is the idea of philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, seeking to understand life, understand reality, and how to live their lives in the context of that reality. Athens was the center of ideas. And when somebody wanted to interact with any new philosophy, they went to Athens. And so the description that we've just read in Acts 17, 21 is accurate. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new or discussing the latest ideas. Now, not that it was a purely intellectual society. It wasn't. Their philosophy had a heavy dose of metaphysics and religion, and the city was littered with idols and with gods. Fifty years after Paul was there, the Greek geographer Pausanias said that you were more likely to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than you were to meet a person. And so to this city, Paul now comes. And as he walks through the city... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That's verse 16. Provoked to see all of these idols, these symbols of worship. And he was provoked because Paul was passionate about only two things, people and God. And it grieved him deeply to see people who were hungry for God worshiping other things. And so... Being Paul, he can't take vacation. He engages the people in dialogue. Engages three kinds of people. The Jews and the others who worship the gods of the Jews. The average Joe on the street. And the philosophers. That's what we read. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. And in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. little philosophic history. The Stoics believed that we, people, are just a cog in the created, the natural order of things. Gods don't run things. The world just runs itself. And so everything that happens, whether it's good or bad, is just how things are and we should just accept it. The Stoics' slogan would be something like, it is what it is, deal with it. The Epicureans taught that There are gods, but they have no real interest or involvement in the world, and that death is the end. So the best way to live is just try to live this life as happy as you can be. Their mottos, you only live once, and if it feels good, do it. And Paul is engaging them, preaching the resurrection. It's what Paul always does. Verse 18, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And because the Athenians were rabid in their interest about new ideas, they invited Paul to address them in the Areopagus. Literally, they laid hold of him and brought him. There's a sense of his being subpoenaed and brought before the council so that they can hear the ideas he's presenting and give their approval or disapproval to them. And it's what he says to them that is the our passage for today. He begins, of course, his speech by recognizing that they are religious people. 
The sheer number of temples and statues of gods had made that clear to him. So he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Didn't want to leave anybody out in case they'd missed the God. Let's build an altar. Don't want to annoy a God unnecessarily if we can help it. They're a profoundly spiritual culture, not so different from our own. 21st century North America is a profoundly spiritual culture. It's not a Christian culture, but it's a spiritual culture. Eastern religions and the New Age movement, which began to explode in the 60s and the 80s, respectively. Today, witchcraft and Mother Earth religions... Books like A New Earth become bestsellers. We are a spiritual culture. And we, too, are surrounded by gods. Not necessarily divine beings, but by gods. Hence, you have American and Canadian idol. Gods that we devote ourselves to, other things, in order to find fulfillment. Things like comfort and achievement and fun, relationships, sex, a car, a celebrity, a sport, gardening golf, travel, you name it. And of course, the God that trumps them all, myself. I do what I want. People need to make me happy. Even God has to act on my terms or I'll set him aside. You walk the streets and the malls of Calgary, you stroll through the stampede this week, you will see gods everywhere. So in Athens, they didn't want to miss one, built an altar to an unknown god. For a city which prided itself on knowledge, they admitted there was something that we might not know. In one of these altars, Paul comes across, and so he says to them, you know what, what you worship is unknown, let me proclaim or declare him to you. And he proceeds to tell this spiritual culture in Athens and Calgary some things about God. And with his words, let me tell you about God today. First, that God is Lord of heaven and earth. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 24, and 25. God made it all, and so by virtue of that, he is Lord of all. He is master of it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the sheer power of his will, he spoke it into being. He sustains it still. And how silly then, Paul says, to think that God needs anything from us. Far from stroking his ego with our religion or thinking that we add anything to him, it is he who has given life and breath and all to us. You, people of Athens, you, people of Calgary, are alive today because God has given you life and continues to give you life. And he is our Lord and our sovereign. We live in his realms. We live according to his terms. But this big, big God is not removed from what he has made, 
but is intimately connected to it. And so the second thing that Paul tells him about God is that he knows you. He knows you. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, Stoics and Epicureans, there is a God, and he is intimately involved with the world and the lives of those who live there. God knows you, and not only does he know you, he's chosen the when and the where of your life. These people in Athens were in Athens in the first century by God's sovereignty. You are in Calgary in the 21st century because of God's sovereignty. It's not determinism or fatalism that you're just robotically walking out God's blueprint for your life. It's not like that. My soccer coach used to put me on defense because my skills were better used there Then as a striker, I couldn't score a goal if my life depended on it. I was better at preventing goals. Now, was I walking out my coach's blueprint? No, but he allotted the time and the position of my play so that I would be the most effective. And God has put you here at this time in history because this is where and when you are best able to know him, best able to be a part of what he is doing, And so best to experience fullness in him. The family you were born into for all of its faults and joys, perhaps even its pain and dysfunction. God put you in that family because somehow he wants to give you fullness of life in that context. Sometimes by redeeming the pain, our families can sometimes cause. Your community, your workplace, your school. Your relationships, your circumstances, God knows them all. God sees you in them. He is not distant from you. He is not unseeing. He has placed you. Why? Well, third thing Paul says is God desires you. God is Lord of all. He knows you. He desires you. This is what Paul goes on to say. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. The reason that you live when and where you do is because this is the time and place where God makes it most likely that you will discover him. The Athenians were groping their way towards God. That's why they had so many gods. They were feeling their way toward the one God. And our own culture, after being so profoundly secular, has seen the bankruptcy of the non-spiritual life and is again feeling its way toward God. And God's desire is that they, we, find him. Because his desire is for us. That's why he's made himself known. He's not torn the sky open and hollered, here I am. He did something very much like that in the Old Testament with the ancient Israelites. And they couldn't handle it and ended up bolting the other way. 
But God has made his reality known in what he has made. We see the heavens, the mountains, the flowers, the marvel that is the human being. And we know there is God. And so God is not far from us. Someone has said, not, there is not one square inch of the universe that is so deprived or neglected, but that on looking closely, you can see God's initials in the lower right-hand corner. Those who feel their way toward God, there is enough evidence for them and God will be found. God desires you and desires that you find him. And maybe, maybe some of you are here today, this morning, because God wants you to find him today. And Paul goes on and becomes very pointed as he tells him this fourth thing about God, and it's this. God calls you. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. There is a God, and he is near, and he desires us, but he is a God with whom we need to reckon. I am amazed, quite frankly, when I hear people say that they believe there is a God, but they don't give him any thought beyond that. No interest in who he is or what his desires are. They admit that they're created, but assume that they don't need to have any interaction with their creator. I don't get that. And Paul is saying to the Athenians what our own culture needs to hear. If the Lord of heaven and earth has made us like himself, which is the idea behind our being his offspring, we are like God in a way that lions and stars are not. If God of heaven and earth has made us like himself, then we have great dignity, and it is, as one pastor has said, degrading to us and insulting to God to worship anything other than him, be it idols in Athens or whatever it is we devote ourselves to today. We ought not to have anything at the center of our lives, including ourselves, than God. Having God off the center is to live a lesser life, to live an idolatrous life. There was a time, Paul says, when God overlooked ignorance. I think because the full revelation of himself and his work of redeeming humanity in Christ had not yet come. But now God is making himself known to you. Now you know who God is. And so there is a call to repent Paul says, to turn around from a life that has anything other than God at its center. The Bible calls this life idolatry. A time to live with God at the center. A time to live recognizing that the Lord of heaven and earth is God and is therefore Lord of us and of you and of me. And Paul says the time to do that is now. Repent now. Why? Because Paul says, God has fixed a day, verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is a day. 
There's a day coming when all humanity will stand before God and give an account for the life that they have lived with him at the center or not. Those who have lived without God, God will give them what they have chosen. Eternity without God. Those who have pursued God, or maybe more accurately, those who have responded to God's pursuit of them, God will give himself to them for eternity. And Paul makes this astonishing statement concerning this judgment, that this judgment will take place by a man whom God has appointed. That is, the divine authority to judge all the human race is given to a man. And who is God's appointed judge? Paul says, and of all of this, he has given, God has given assurance to all by raising him, this appointed judge, by raising him from the dead. The one by whom all humanity will be judged one day in righteousness is the one who has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance by God that Jesus is God's appointed judge. For the resurrection of Jesus is that event by which God has elevated Jesus to his own right hand and given to him the name that is above all names and vindicated the life and ministry and the claims about himself that Jesus made while walking on this earth. The resurrection is the proof, the evidence, the definitive affirmation of God on Christ. We Christians, we affirm the biblical testimony that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he is our savior, that he bore the judgment for our sin when he died on the cross, that there is no other provision for sin that God has made. There are no other means by which we can be reconciled to God, no other way by which we can live a life of fullness. And the reason that we say these things with such confidence is because of the resurrection. That's why Paul here And the apostles all through Acts preached Jesus and the resurrection. Romans 1.4 says that it's by his resurrection that Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God. That's why the church throughout history has declared Jesus Christ by declaring his death and resurrection. And why I, on this day, in this moment, proclaim Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But we also declare from that what Paul declared, that God is Lord of heaven and earth, that God knows you, that God desires you and calls you to live your life with him at the center as you were created to do, to respond to him, For there is a day coming when God's son Jesus will judge the world and judge you and judge me and he will do it with righteousness. That day apparently is not today. Therefore, today is the day of repentance. But there is a time coming when there will be no more today. And so the time to repent, to respond to God, to respond to his revelation of himself is today. When Paul finished telling the Athenians about God, there were three responses from the people who heard them. And three responses possible for you today. First, some of them mocked. 
Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some thought maybe that the idea of a single supreme God was silly. Some made fun of the idea of the resurrection. Today, many people mock the idea of Christ and of Christianity. And if, if we, if you dismiss it today, heed the warning of Scripture that you will someday stand before the righteous judge, Jesus the Christ. Don't dismiss it lightly. Yesterday, again, I had somebody come to my door. It was a Jehovah's Witness, and we engaged in a conversation, and I ended up preaching at him and went to Philippians chapter 2 and just said, your knee someday will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Jehovah, which is what the text says. And he will stand before the righteous judge. And I called him to repent. And he called me to repent. We cannot lightly dismiss the testimony of Scripture concerning Jesus Christ. Some mocked. Secondly, others explored. There are others who said, we will hear you again about this. I want to know more. I'm intrigued. Something is resonating. Can you tell me more about this God, this man who has been resurrected, this Jesus? And maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to hear more. You've got questions. By all means, explore. Christianity, you know what? Christianity stands up to scrutiny and to doubt. Asking questions doesn't endanger it, doesn't undermine it. There's so much, I think, compelling evidence for the resurrection, for the accuracy and authority of Scripture, for the lordship of Jesus. And some people come to church, rightly, I think, because they're on a journey of learning. And that's right and it's good. But you need to know also that the intellectual pursuit will only take you so far. And what is needed is not just understanding and the facts and the answers to some questions. What is needed is God himself as revealed through Jesus Christ himself. And so as you explore, ask him not just to reveal the facts or the truth, but to reveal himself to you. God will not hide himself from the seeker. Because he desires you and is there as you grope your way toward him. Explore and ask the questions. Don't be afraid to do that. Some mocked, some explored, but the thirst, third response was belief. Paul went out from their midst, we read, verse 33, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. They recognized the truth of what Paul had said about one God whom they had had some shadowy sense of maybe for years. They responded to the call to repent. They believed Paul's testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. And maybe today you say, I believe. I've known something about God. I've tried to feel my way toward him. Well, today in Jesus, I want to place God at the center. I understand, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God who died for my sins and lives again. And it's he that will judge me for eternity someday. Maybe that's you today. If, if that is you today, I, 
I plead with you to not... Today is a day of repentance. Don't let the time slip by. If you need to explore, then, then explore. But if you feel like today, you know what? I'm, I'm convicted of those things. I believe it. I need God at the center. This, this truth about Jesus is truth. I sense that. Then respond. Respond to him today. I'll be right here when the service is done. Just find me. Talk to me. If you have questions, come and ask them. If there's somebody here that you know and you trust them in terms of their own spiritual journey, ask them questions. They'll be delighted to introduce you to Jesus. God is Lord of heaven and earth. God knows you. He's sovereign over your life and every facet of it. He desires you to know him, to seek him. He calls you to repent of living as if anything or anyone other than God ought to be at the center of your life. Jesus died for your sins. He lives again. He is appointed judge of all people. He will judge according to righteousness on the appointed day. These things I just declare to you as truth, with confidence and conviction. I would, I think, die for these things. And so if this is truth, then know that to dabble with God is both foolish and dangerous. To respond to him with adoration and with obedience is right. But to speak his name while your heart is far from him, to try to confine him to that religious facet of your life, or to like him as long as he's operating on your terms, that's not to honor him as he is for who he is. So how do you respond to this God? If you're unsure of him, seek, learn, ask, Discover, pray. If you call yourself a Christian, you may need to ask, am I dabbling? Or am I surrendered? And for all of us, trust. Trust. God knows you and your circumstances. He is present and he is active in your life and circumstances. And you are here on purpose. That you might draw near to God and discover that all of this time God has been drawing near to you. Let's pray. Lord, our very lives are in your hands in the largest sense of that truth. Because the galaxies and the planet and the years of our history are all in your hands. You see them, you know them. But our lives are in your hands in the smallest sense of that truth as well. Our own thoughts and emotions and experiences, our own personal history, our feelings at this moment, the circumstances we find ourselves in in this day with all of its pains and all of its joys, even that is in your hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, but he's also got just me paying attention and looking and caring. And we thank you for this. And we pray that by your good work in our lives, 
If there are those here or who are feeling their way towards you, that you will grant them understanding of the truth, that you would enlighten the eyes of their heart, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And those others here who are Christian by name and in practice, enable us to a greater degree to trust you, to trust you with our circumstances, to live with confidence that on the day of judgment we will be secure because of the righteousness of Christ. Help us to live our lives increasingly with you at the center, consciously and not not so busy that we find ourselves kind of spinning you off the center. We thank you that what is true 2,000 years ago in a city in another continent is true today. You are the God of heaven and earth who knows us, seeks us, calls us to live with you, and centers our experience of God in the person of Jesus who died and rose and will come again. Some things never change. Forgive us the sin of dabbling. Lead us into full surrender. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We are going to, as a congregation now, celebrate...